Podcast Guide takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Do you get the feeling there might be something... Eh, wrong with the Silver Spears? Who's got the best teeth in the 15th? And, uh... <laughs> what those canines do. That's what I'm saying! The Kharsum word for war is derived from the one used for a full cookpot. That tells you everything you need to know about how the clans think of creation. Extract from Horrors and Wonders, famed travelogue of Anabis the Ashuran. So, in this chapter, the battle begins. But it's an interlude chapter called Greenskins, which is not a word I'm still sure I'm allowed to say. And that means we get to see what some of the coolest little boys in the place do. In fact, we see what the coolest little boy does, and we see some other cool little boys like Juniper. Yeah, uh, this isn't something that happens every time there's a major conflict by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely a method that E likes to employ where when something big happens, you immediately go to an interlude so that there's, I don't know, this focus on what's going on at the ground level before switching back to Catherine for her big moment. It's a good way of setting the scene for Catherine's I was going to say heroic moment, but, you know, that's not exactly appropriate. Velonic? Yep, her Velonic moment. But before we get to the chapter, cue the audience looking at each other knowingly. The extract from Horrors and Wonders, the famed travelogue of this guy, says that the word for war is derived from the one used for a full cookpot. And while I don't know, I would like to press X to doubt. This rings to me, especially if it's a famed travelogue, especially if it's called Horrors and Wonders, which is a horrifying name for any anthropologically sensitive document. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it feels like it would be a song on Jenny from Thebes by the Mountain Goats in reference to Riches and Wonders from All Hill West Texas, the album to which Jenny of Thebes is kind of a direct sequel. But, hey, how many Inuit words are there for snow? Uh, sort of famously, many. And sort of accurately, not really. Like, there are three main routes going on. And they're falling snow, fallen snow, and snow on the ground. According to a Wikipedia page I read, which used a word I'm not going to say on the podcast, but if you know any other words for Inuit, you should maybe consider whether they're appropriate to use. Uh, But yeah, the words mutate and... There are derivations and such. But the idea that, oh, you know, these exoticized people have a 
linguistically unique view of the world, yeah, that can be true. People do have different things. There are languages, most notably uh, Aboriginal Australian languages, that don't have left and right, but rather just northeast, southwest, and there's an awareness that people who speak these languages have of the directions because that's how the world is seen. Sure. But a lot of common understanding of language is false etymology, false fact, and way too much sapir wharf. And, you know, just because we don't have the same color divisions in our language that they have in Russian doesn't mean we don't have the colors. Even if when you don't have a word for blue, you call the seas wine dark, the seas are still blue. They were back then. That was before pollution existed, when humanity was good and pure, and we're bad now because of technology. And that's actually kind of true, but I can't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the point being, I wouldn't be bowled over to find out that war is derived from full cookpot, but that seems like way too much of a claim that benefits the entrenched power structures and exoticizes, minimizes, and simplifies orcish everything. I can... I can very easily see a world where the word for war is something like meat taking or, you know, something like that for, and that the word for cook pot or full cook pot is meat pot or something. And this guy heard the word meat twice and was like, ah, they're the same full cook pot and, and war are the same thing. I got it. You know, there's that kind of thing where sure there could be, a relationship but to act like but to yeah coming from this source there, there's definitely like an eyebrow raise or two that might be necessary it's just wild that the early european philologists when they were like hey do you notice that sanskrit is kind of like latin here are two things that seem similar i bet they're the same we're actually onto something because mostly <laughs> when you have people doing that you're, i mean goodness just goodness so in short, to sum all of this up, etymology is fake, and anybody who studies it is just making things up. They're like wine tasters. Tune in for our next podcast, Better Etymology, coming when you give us money for it. Speaking, however, of in short, robber. Robber. The story begins with our favorite little guy, after two other little guys, Lieutenant Balker and Captain Clipper. Captain Clipper, by the way, does have sexy, sexy canines. Uh, I mean, let's slip those dogs of war, am I right? Yikes. <laughs> oh, I'd be... If I were a goblin, I'd be dead by now. Because I'm above the age of five. But we get a lot of robber trying to lead his... No, not trying. We get a lot of robber effectively leading his troops, but it doesn't have the same decorum and structures of order that we expect from the legions. Because they're... the they're goblins, they're sappers, and also they are the worst. No doubt. It, it's important to note, Cat plays pretty fast and loose with a lot of regulations by dint of being named and also, you know, Black's heir. But Robber makes her look like a very by-the-books leader, for sure. But actually, that does bring up a point, which is, you know how Cat has mysterious heritage, half-orc, half-something else? Mm -hmm. Even though we figured it out already, but let's play along. What if that half were goblin? Let's play a quick game. It's who said it? A goblin or Catherine, who's also a goblin? Ooh, okay. uh, let me just find something in a previous chapter and totally not this interlude, so it's probably Catherine. Uh, yeah, how about there was a murmur of approval from the ranks, though some filthy, traitorous elements dissented. No. 
whose voice does that sound like? Well, geez, I honestly I wouldn't be able to tell. It's not, it could easily come from basically any goblin or Catherine. Exactly, and that was actually Catherine in chapter sixty-four. Wake. Wow. Coincidentally, it's also in this chapter narrated by Robert. But yeah, go. What? Not chapter sixty-four. I'm sorry. All of chapter sixty-four is narrated by Robert was, in this chapter. That was chapter twenty-five. Wake. Yeah, episode 64. Uh, um, but you don't have to go back and check because we're moving on to talk about the next thing, which is about authority. It is about it. Robert um, has an understanding of prison stereotypes, of American prison, I don't know, if not stereotypes, then jokes about American prison culture that translates into how to be a leader in a, in a state-sponsored hit squad is that what goblins are kind of i'm gonna stick with that in a in a state-sponsored arsonists club uh he says if you wanted your authority unquestioned you had to walk up to the biggest prisoner on the cell block rip out their eyes and make a necklace out of them which uh, you know what kind of a classic move it's uh, and it's a classic for a reason works every time but then he goes on to say it's metaphorically speaking. I don't know how you metaphorically take people's eyes out and make necklaces out of them, but it's probably a goblin thing. I mean, this is Robert, and we do know that in their conversations with Rashid in Chapter 1, Book 2, Supply, we are told that Robert has been said to have a jar full of eyeballs in his knapsack. So I think he is just a little crafty guy. That is nice that he has a hobby. A metaphorical hobby. A meta- yeah, of course. Not a literal hobby. Other than, of course, killing them and taking their stuff. <laughs> Which is the operational creed of Robert's cohort, apparently. Which uh, is <laughs> difficult with the devils, I gotta say. Right. We also learn directly after that that goblins don't have tear ducts. So, not the most important thing in the world, but kind of a neat little biological thing going on here. Um but then he, uh, when he sends out his soldiers to soldier around, or whatever it is soldiers do, he cackles at them and tells, it says, go forth, my minions. And uh, it, it's nice because Catherine has had some trouble with that word in the past, where she sometimes thinks it or says it and then gets mad when other people use it. So it's nice that Robert is just willing to, Yep, you're my minions. Just he, he leans into it. He's willing to use the right word for what these other fellows are. And to cackle it is execution. It's oh, not course. just commitment. It's poise. It's, I mean, 10 out of 10. Five out of seven. Whoa. Following that, though, uh, we get a quick scene shift. This chapter goes back and forth a lot. Um, has quite a few scenes that take place, and uh, you just get little glimpses here and there. Um, which is common for an interlude, but I think this one switches around a bit more than normal, even. Uh, we go to see uh, Juniper and her staff, including Aisha, kind of keeping an eye on the battlefield and doing some planning and some uh, threat assessment and napping at one point. Um, but during this, we, we you know the scrying thing that we talked about last chapter or two chapters ago, where uh, they had set up sort of scrying stations so that <laughs> Juniper could keep an eye on the battlefield and react to threats quickly. Uh, she's making use of that. Uh, she's got mages looking into bulls and scouting on different areas of the battlefield. And the Hellhound checks in by asking word from the west, just checking in on one one part of the battlefield here. And the person who's watching the this part of the battlefield just says, the enemy hasn't engaged, which to me feels like a pretty good 
if simple, response to the question. Ugh, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it feels like she didn't give him a lot to work with, and he responded with probably the most pertinent detail. And Juniper, unkindly, uh, per the narration, thinks humans, as you know, she's frustrated with this. What she wanted to know is what the Silver Spears look like. Fair that she wants to know that, but if you say word from the West, I don't know why the assumption would be Describe to me the physical bodies of the people who are coming nearby. I don't know. It, it, it seems like she's being a bit unreasonable here. I can't really excuse and disagree with you. But I will say, you know, she's probably under a degree of stress. Though being Juniper, it would be youth stress rather than distress. People, at least from American high schools, do you remember when they were trying to teach the difference between the two in health class as so it really matters. Stress be stress, fam. It's just fun sometimes. So they've got this scrying situation set up, and there's a fantastic usage here where on the actual battlefield, the mage who has the bowl is <laughs> standing and holding the bowl facing toward the enemy rather than, you know, holding it level with the ground, uh, parallel to the ground and speaking into it like you expect these bowls of water to be used. It's a mirror, so the mage is pointing the mirror at the enemy so it's almost like uh, a camera <laughs> where uh they're able to look into the bowl juniper's able to look into the bowl where she is and have a view of the battlefield through it and it's just very funny to me to imagine a guy in robes or in armor and robes whatever standing near the a place where devils are rushing in and just sort of pointing a large bowl at them standing on the roof of a house it's pretty good I think they need to take a book from The Legend of Zelda, uh, from Zelda, the main character of that game, the guy in green, and mm -hmm. get a mirror shield. So you can kind of just point a shield, and then the mirror is pointing, pointing out, and then you can be safe. And you can also reflect light to solve puzzles, which oh. the army of, not the army of Kalo at this point, which the legions of Terra seem woefully unprepared for. They're also a little unprepared because they got the wrong guy there. And I, 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 I know there's a lot going on and that I'm maybe overselling his poor choice in this, but also he can't control himself if he has feelings and he has big feelings that make him want to do this. Mm -hmm. But Nock is leading a big part of defense, but he also is really upset because that's why he wants to lead it because his, his little friend died. Mm -hmm. And Juniper thinks, you know, Hewn might have been a better choice because she's a cold blood, having nothing but the shallowest of emotions, unmoved by fear and with natural assertiveness, which sounds like a great deal for this kind of job. And mm -hmm. also, there's no wrong way to experience emotional life. I recognize there are losses and gains and all sorts of things, and it can be difficult to have different lifestyles with different things, but you aren't bad for having emotions or not having them. What you do with them matters. But Juniper frames this as she was a cold blood, Juniper suspected, much like she'd once thought Hakram was. And I know we know a different Hakram because he came to life in Knowing Catherine, but sardonic, lusty, just big old fluffy Hakram, an emotionless wall of stone. Mm -hmm. Willing to sacrifice basically everything for his friends motivated by sentimentality very frequently like unmoved by fear sure naturally assertive sure but everything else i don't know 
Was Catherine really such a change? It like that is a massive change that in her memory he is m- incapable of anything but the shallowest of emotions and now he's just like a guy who hangs with the crew and is cool i don't know maybe no i'm gonna say probably not i don't think juniper really knows too many of our best friends in the army too personally which is okay yeah she knows their skills right Catherine hates hune and that's okay juniper can have misread hawkram slightly and that'd be okay speaking of juniper's relations though we get a big old glimpse into Juniper's family relationship in a 12-word sentence. Mm-hmm. Nock had too much of a temper, much like her own mother. And this is... It's a lot here because we know already, and we know later, Juniper loves her mommy. She's... Oh, yeah. They are not... It's not like the relationship is one of constant strain and squabbling. Juniper only wanted to join the legions to get her mother's respect. No. They're family that seems to have gone pretty well, who went into the same field. But she also isn't blinded by her mother's mythos, which I bet a lot of orcs are, but they have a different vantage point. Istrid is great, but Juniper has a professional opinion. She has too much of a temper. Which, I don't know, you know? You might hate to see a girl boss winning, but Women can have it all. A good family relationship and professional disapproval. That's the mother-daughter relationship I want. It's also, this is in part of uh, Juniper's discussion about Nock, or her internal monologue about Nock. And she says that Nock has too much of a temper, um, which is funny because I don't feel like Nock has a temper. He's a pretty chill guy, Except when he suddenly is in the red rage, which doesn't feel to me like it's exactly a temper. It's just sometimes his brain turns into hill brain instead of person brain a little bit. And yeah, it's like anger related, but it's also sadness related. It's not, I don't know. I think saying Nock has a temper is a bit misleading for exactly what's going on with him. I don't mean to read in cutting edge modern psychoanalysis onto this. And while I would love to read in Freudian psychoanalysis, we have neither the time nor the lack of quality to do so. But I think Juniper isn't exactly good at mental health and is unwilling to examine and deal with something that maybe even inefficient, uh, irrelevant to her thinking. Which is one reason why she is twice just laid out by psychological difficulties. Because she has no methods for dealing with things because it's not a valid thing to have to deal with. I'm reading a lot into it. But also, if you're listening to this, go get therapy right now. (laughs) I mean, always good advice for pretty much everybody. Unless you already have like a regular therapy thing, you don't need double therapy. That probably gets too expensive if you live in the U.S. So don't don't do that. It's pretty bad in a lot of places. That mental health isn't real health, legally speaking, in so many places. Oof. And it's also not good advice if you're us, who have perfect brains and are better. Perfectly smooth, symmetrical brains. Yes. Mine is an orb. <laughs> uh, uh, but Istrid's a pretty yeah. Istrid can be critiqued, but she's been effective. Right. Uh, 
you know, we've got this comparison here uh, between Nock and Istrid and Juniper as well. Uh, and Aisha says that uh, Juniper's got the thirst, you know, the thirst for battle. It's like a just, we've talked about this before, that where a lot of orcs have this, like, a bit of a thing for war, I would say. Uh, Juniper has, hmm, let me rephrase that. A lot of orcs have a bit of a thing for battle, for fighting. Juniper has a similar thing, but for commanding in war and battle. And, uh, which is a lot about what this chapter, about her perspective in this chapter is about. But we get this uh, little comparison, you know, you've got Nock, who's got a temper, and Istrid, who also has a temper, but doesn't do the Red Rage. We also find out that Istrid is the only one of the Precy generals who fights in the ranks. Uh, which is interesting, given the nature of some of the other Precy generals. But also, wild that Istrid does. Uh, like, yeah, she's an orc, and orcs like to fight, but it seems like being in the fighting in the ranks is a rough place where the person commanding a legion to be for a number of reasons. Yeah, but on the other hand, she's one of the most successful generals, at least in modern Precy history, if not ever. So it's effective, and it's not like it's going to go wrong at this point now that they're winning, now that they've won. Oh, boy. Whatever happens to Istrid? So, uh, Juniper's got some concerns about Nock and his red rage. Valid concerns. However, Nock is, if you recall, in command of, I believe they're called Kabilis, the the fifth or so of a legion. He He's a sub-commander. Juniper's in charge of the entire legion, and will eventually be in charge of all of the legions and soldiers that Catherine can muster. And I'm concerned about her being in charge of that many people, given a sentence that I'm about to read out loud for you into my microphone. Gods forgive her, but she was almost grateful to Eris for having laid out such a fine banquet in front of the 15th. That level of distance from a battle and relish for a battle is concerning from somebody making not just tactical, but also strategic decisions, if you ask me. I understand the Juniper is extremely capable, one of the most capable generals on Kalernia, and that she doesn't let this guide her decision-making particularly. She does the right choice and then just enjoys when that leads to a battle. But this is the kind of thing that if you heard a commander of a, an, an army say, you'd have some very real concerns about their ability to make the right strategic call. May I do the thing where I, in the wake of you having made a good point, instead focus on a detail that wasn't part of your point? Please. Gods forgive her. What an interesting epithet in this theometaphysical orientation. I feel like that's quite the reach for some dark gods that you also kind of want to avoid interacting with on too heavy a level. And I think that's nifty. I agree. But Juniper may ask the gods to forgive her, but she's excited about an impossible battle. Because the remnants of the Hundred Devils are bad, the Silver Spears are bad, and the demon is the end of all things. And Juniper is thinking of how one day she'll go out in bloody glory, far away from now, because it would not be today. Her quiver was still full. Not to use the term that Gen Z has reappropriated and 
tried to make a thing, even though I knew the word before they were even alive. So there. But sheesh. Sheesh mang. What, you don't think she's going to survive? No. There's a demon. Hmm. I guess that's a fair point. Consider, though, she's got a bow, apparently. What? Uh, she. We get this little bow metaphor here where Juniper is. Juniper's plans are arrows she's knocking and loosing towards the devils, I guess. Um, which is fun. I like it. But it's done. There's a really cool bit here at the end of this chunk. Uh, you know, at the end of this scene where we're switching back to Robert, uh, where we get uh, Aisha letting Juniper know that the sappers have engaged the enemy. And then we get the hellhound smiled and knocked her arrow. Scene change. The bolt took the devil in the eye and it screamed. Uh, you know what? That's nice. I like that. That is a good scene transition that really only works in a text medium. It's the visual mediums. Let me try that again. Visual media do things like this, but it's nice that you can go from metaphor to literal because it's text like this. So I, I just, this is good. Can you remind me how they pulled this off in the anime adaptation? This scene, this particular scene transition? Yeah. Uh, it just kind of like does that anime zoom, like really abstract anime zoom into Juniper's mouth. And the, the metaphor is more about eating. It's like a maw thing. And it just zooms in on one of her teeth. Oh. And then the perspective switches. So the tooth is like an arrowhead. So it play, plays on the like orcish stereotype. Okay, I see that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That will be released by the time this one goes out, right? I don't want to reveal anything. Uh, of course, we've already seen it. And it's okay, public. Good. We watched it with everybody else. Right, we don't have early access or knowledge about that. Would the be absurd. Yeah, anime no, absolutely not. <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, uh, but the scene we go to is more gobos, and Robert's being chased by a devil. He runs, gets it stuck in a house briefly, but it's going to come through. But he has a sapper bring the house down on top of it, but it probably won't be enough because I mean it's a thatch roof. It's not going to. It's you know. It's rubble, it's not crushing, but they throw jugs of oil on it and a pine wood match, setting the whole thing aflame without missing a beat. And I get why they're doing this. Also, great job using the tools at hand, the tools being a city. And also, wow, I, I, I knew it was serious, but breaking down the buildings and lighting them on fire could go sideways. I, I forget, we're... You in London in 1666? Like, early September? Uh, no, I don't believe so. Oh, well, this is exactly what happened there. And it burned a lot, but not as much as Peshtigo did in northern Wisconsin on the day of the Chicago fire. Peshtigo fire is the worst in the nation's history. It's very interesting stuff. Look it up. Like It's wild how big it was. Horrible event. And if you go to Peshtigo today, you can read about it. Or if you go to Wikipedia today. I was about to say, I think there's probably another place you could look. but, but yeah. you know. We're happy to announce that Jimmy Wales has called us. Wikipedia is now fully funded thanks to your generous donations. You are the best audience a podcast could have. Truly. The, Robert is, you know, working to, like you said, destroy buildings. There's fire. There's goblin things going on. But they're having to use... Uh, oil jugs made in tallow, which are of poor quality compared to goblin quality materials. No surprise there. 
And uh, we get a, a little glimpse into how Robert thinks about things, because he says, if they hadn't confiscated them from local stocks, he would have complained about the quality. He still would, of course, but he'd have done it much more if the 15th actually paid for them. I, we've, we've talked about this. We'll continue to talk about it. It's just, frankly, awesome how unapologetically mercurial Robert is. He's, in one sentence, so willing to be like, ah, I would do this thing if not for X. I mean, I'm still going to do the thing. But, you know, he's just willing to just go with his whims and be as just nasty as possible. And just no shame in it. He's just who he is. And it's fantastic. So, no new realizations here? Oh, yeah. no, Just rehashing, retreading? How much we love Robert, yeah. Okay. One thing that is true about Robert, you know, who he is, is that apparently he's got a pretty good sense of time because he's a goblin, and goblins just have a more advanced, innate understanding of the passage of time than humans or orcs, which is just sort of thrown in here as a little detail. It's pretty cool. Uh, I don't know how much there is to read into this, but it can make sense. Goblins don't have the, I don't know, crutch of sunlight to rely on for, or the movement of the moon even, to rely on to tell what time it is or how much time has passed. So they have to have an internal clock that works better, maybe. Or maybe it's just the goblins who are bad at timing got blown up by other goblin munitions at some point, and so that trait just died off. (laughs) But, uh, I don't know, it's just a, a neat little thing. Traditionally in evolution, it is. Either your trait gets passed on or you get blown up. Yeah, I, that, I've read a lot of Darwin, and there's so many references to bombs. Well, I think on the origin of species is dub bomb. That said, wow. speaking of things that are explosive, Nox Temper. Ooh. He has had a harder time controlling the rage lately, which, you know, worth bringing up. I, I appreciate why this feels like the right thing. But you need to appreciate how it is the wrong thing for you to be leading. But it's gotten stronger since, and if I may quote, his brother's death. Poor guy. Is is he not referring to Nil in here? Yeah. Okay. Just making sure we weren't... Just yeah. the the depth. Oh, of, yeah. Like, poor baby. He's... Listen, Nock is having... Nock has had, is having, and will continue to have a rough go. And Until he, it's happy ending. Oh boy. And he still remains like a pretty trusting, like, yeah, if Catherine says it, full trust, let's go. I have absolute faith in her until the end. As much as Nock is Nock, he really is just a good fella, huh? He's such a precious little darling who's done nothing wrong and never will. Ignore the time he punched a guy because he was sad and also wrestled Catherine. also an aside from me of all people it's cute expressing intimacy with you know a non-biological brotherhood or what have you but i gotta say as someone without siblings i would never consider anyone like a brother because that relationship is meaningless to me you know it's dear Mm. a friend brother what no that's not a thing i don't view anyone like a brother because i have no interest in having any brothers i'm the favorite child my parents regularly tell me this. Huh. That, that's an interesting take on that. Because I know there are people who don't have 
who also don't have siblings who would use the phrase, you know, like a brother, or consider somebody a brother and put a lot of meaning in that. And it goes the other way for you. That That's interesting. I, I do have a brother and really don't consider other people my brother aside from him. So I think what we're both saying here is Nock doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes. And orcs are bad at kinship. And thus his grief is invalid. Yeah. So why don't you go off and write an angsty poem about it? Oh, cool. He does. Uh, Sick. He, <laughs> he talks about, he's sort of talking about Precy and orcs as two different peoples here, two different cultures here, um, just for making the point he's making, which I think is reasonable in many ways. Um, and he says that he used to think that orcs were ruthless, uh, but that he's learned better. And then he gives us this <laughs> this uh, absolutely metal poetic description of the tower. He says, the tower was built on blood and hatred, a monument paved with a hundred thousand lives sacrificed at the altar of boundless ambition. And uh, that's quite the image he's painted here. And he's drawing the, the juxtaposition that he's drawing here is with some people who die in wars on the steps. So, yeah, the tower is uh, is pretty bad comparatively. <laughs> so that's the thing about empire and colonialism is uh, conquered peoples have historically not been perfect. Because they were savage, understand. Noble. But I hate everyone who goes anywhere and oppresses. Like, stop. Uh, but the sins of empire are necessarily greater than those of you know, the empire native people groups. Yeah. Because it's bigger. It's real big. You know what else is real big? Oh, uh, what else is real big? The legions of terror. They are. You know what else is real big? <laughs> what else is real big? Horses. Have you ever been by a horse? I've seen horses. Yeah. They're large. They should not be that big and they should not be that breakable. And if I may get political for a second, they should not be. Wow, that is a stance. The uh, it, well, okay, I should preface this. It, it we're in a chapter focused on a battle or a series of chapters focused on battle, so it is unfortunately time for a, the the it is unfortunately time for our recurring segment, Rome Watch, where I make a direct comparison between the legions of terror and the legions of ancient Rome. We get one sentence here that is interesting. Uh, Nock informs us, you know, normal spiel about, ah, how are we getting this information? The legions of terror were no match for the heavy phalanxes used by the free cities. And this is in reference to the fact that they are very good at fighting heavy cavalry because of, you know, spending centuries fighting Callowan knights. So the legions of terror, as we've discussed before, are pretty solidly modeled on Roman legions in a lot of ways. You know, we've made a number of comparisons here. And the Roman legions of the Republican era that were the kind of legions that people probably most commonly think about when they think about Roman legions were in some ways developed as a means of very effectively beating heavy phalanxes. Uh, the legions were famously good at defeating phalanxes on a battlefield. So it's interesting to me that the legions of terror are bad against phalanxes when they are <laughs> modeled after uh, <laughs> the the Roman legions like that. It's just, it's cool that the focus here is being able to stand up against cavalry, and yet the 
flexibility that the the legions utilize the like combined arms methods that they use still don't let them take on a phalanx i don't know just a fun little quirk there did rome's phalanctic enemies field heroes who wielded the light of the gods themselves uh historically speaking yeah i guess if you want to draw a weird connection between like the heroes of greek mythology and the phalanxes of republican era rome greece but uh no otherwise other than that no so yes for all intents and purposes yeah 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 exactly then i really don't see why it is this way good pointing it out so knock is sad about Nilin, yeah, Nilin, and uh, has had to replace him with a new tribune, with a new senior tribune. And one reason, half the reason, in fact, Nock promoted her was she had nothing in common whatsoever with her predecessor, whether it be in gender, race, or even general disposition. Gender, I get. It seems like a pretty binary gendered world. So, man and woman mean something to orcs just as they do to humans. General disposition? Yeah. They they have relationships. Race is a weird one to me, simply because I feel like if Hakram exploded and Catherine re- replaced him with an orc, even though she's aware of their clans, would Red Shield be so different than Howling Wolves be so different than B- Big Hammer? One of those was made up and you'll never guess which. I don't, I don't know. Well, race as a major dividing line is mm-hmm. a construct, even though there are physical differences that we lump together into the construct. And I that that's how I read this is that Nock is basically saying here her skin's a different color than Nilin's. You know, like something is more or less from real perspectives not super meaningful, uh, but that he is able to if he catches her out of the corner of his eye, there's no chance he's going to think Nilin first. But yeah, uh, the, uh, having a different species be concerned about race like that does is, is a little, I don't know, odd might even be a strong word. It's definitely worth paying attention to. It's definitely worth calling out and, you know, it's like investigating if a little bit. clever black cat gets caught by an eagle, you might replace it with a stupid, stupid orange thing instead. Exactly. Even though I don't, we don't, you know, you know what animal people do see. No, you know what, cat people don't see breed for the most part. Dog people see breed. Dog breed. Dogs are fake. fake. They do not exist. Look inside. They are all robots. The birds are real people. Are trying to distract us. Think about it. You have eaten chickens. They're birds. They're real. The battle continues for a moment before we switch back to uh, Juniper. Uh, and Juniper notices what's going on here, that uh, for some reason the enemy is lining up horses against the Legion's spears. Typically not the tactical call one would make, were they in full control of their faculties. Aisha comments on this and says that the corruption may have scrambled their brains. And then we get uh, a little insight into the working relationship that these two have. Uh, so Aisha offers the suggestion, and we get, Neither of the two women expected the legate to reply. The hellhound spoke aloud to focus her thoughts. Aisha's contribution was to serve as a sounding board by throwing around ideas to be adopted or dismissed. It 
you gotta love a good, healthy working dynamic. Aisha can offer ideas. Juniper and Aisha both know who the brilliant mastermind is here. Neither of them is annoyed by Aisha's offering suggestions that maybe get dismissed or by Juniper not responding to Aisha's suggestions or ideas. It's just a healthy, hey, we're going to work on this together. Juniper's got the final say. We both know that. And that's fine. It's it's cute because it shows the depth of their bond as well, even if we only see the professional aspect of it, because niceties are required before a certain point. They can be nice after it, but in the words of Jonathan Colton, the thoughtless kindness of a coffee cup waiting by the door, it's not something you might recall to say thank you for every day, but it's an implied thanks and it's a kindness. But you gotta sure. get there. And this Legion is, what, a chapter and a half old, give or take? And they are there. And I love them. And they know that the bad guys have a surprise up their sleeves? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, Juniper thinks for a moment and then decides that the enemy has a surprise up their sleeves and, you know, issues orders to counteract that. And this got me thinking, it must be extremely difficult to plan and predict what's going on here when not only you know that your foe has an alien psychology, but also that you don't know exactly how alien that psychology is. They don't know the effects of the corruption on the people who are people, the devils, the corrupted people. I don't know exactly how this works. They don't know the exact effects the corruption has on their enemy. They don't know who is making the decisions fully. Juniper is reacting to a battlefield where she is facing off against an intelligence whose psychology is not really predictable and is so good at battles that she's able to read it anyway. Just very impressive. Have you ever read Arcadia Martin's A Desolation Called Peace, the sequel to her, I think, debut novel, A Memory Called Empire? I have, and yes, debut novel. If you are interested in dealing with alien psychologies and trying to interpret, not a bad place to go if you're looking for something to read. And even if you're not the biggest fan of sci-fi, no, it's great. Also, the first book is better, but that isn't a slight on the second. Because oh, no. the first book is it's up there, okay? If you like good literature and you do because you're listening to this, you will like that book. And if you don't, you're a poser and a fraud. And we all know it. If you like, if you like sci-fi at all and aren't fully dedicated to it being incredibly hard sci-fi, and if you like political sci-fi or artistic sci-fi, either way, just read A Memory Called Empire. It's so good. It's unbelievably good. Just go check it out. Go take a look. And if you don't like it, you're an insolent twerp. I'm sorry, no. Nice. That is, in fact, what Juniper thinks of Robber. And we know Juniper's always right, and she just got to prove it again. He is an insolent twerp. Yeah. Maybe we'll all be so lucky. Honestly. We get a bit more about uh, Juniper's viewpoint of the battle. Uh, she's setting it up as this battle of attrition. Uh, she's got the goblins, the sappers slowly falling back and leaving traps and doing damage they do to kind of lure the enemy into the kill box. Uh, and as Robert nears this last stretch, Juniper says, good, let's tidy up this empire. It's such a weird way to phrase what's going on here as cleaning up the empire, which means I think she was forcing that a little bit, which tells me Juniper is a true patriot. And we 
can't but respect her for that. I'm not sure I've explicitly stated my views on patriotism on this podcast, but I have stated my views on Robert. And one of the things I'm glad about regarding Robert is that he will be around forever. Oh, man. He, during his next perspective chunk, he announces to uh, Captain, he announces to Captain Clipper, I'm actually invincible. Truly, I've been ignoring the evidence for too long. It's the only explanation that makes sense. And all I really have to say about that is, if only. I'm very sad now. Because Robert dies. Yeah. However, even our beloved Robert is not perfect. What? Or rather, even our beloved Robert's troops are not worthy of him. There you go. Uh, Robert's crew here is taking pretty heavy casualties. Unsurprising, they are sappers, they're irregulars, fighting devils. Uh, but he doesn't have a lot of remorse for the people who are dying around him, except that he's displeased that Hellhound will get snippy about it. Uh, one of his sappers dies, and the way he phrases it is, uh, some of his sappers had gotten their idiot skulls caved in. And there's this interesting thing here where, for very different reasons, I guess, and for with different results... Orcs and goblins both, the two perspective species of this chapter, which is why that's you know important here, have a pretty low or limited regard for life generally. Like Not to say that they are animals who just kill at will and nothing matters, but compared to humans especially, they both don't have the same, I don't know, respect for keeping people alive. Orcs are huge into war and it's just like a massive cultural thing to be killing people and eating them and goblins are uh abused into thinking that their own deaths are and lives are meaningless so you know there's a a different layer there but you know it's kind of neat that we've got the two green skin races to use the title of the chapter here and that they have a similar take on the value of an individual life but got there for different cultural reasons and, you know, act on that in different ways. Both of those ways are, in a lot of ways, rooted in trauma. Oh, for sure. And it's also, worth, it's also worth noting here that this isn't just a racism thing from them. Like, I'm sure if you asked an elf about their perspective on the value of a human or dwarf or orc life, it would be not great. And for many humans, <clears throat> Billiam, the value of an orc life is next to nothing. This is just general for all people coming from the orcs and goblins that we see, the cultures that are on screen, at least. What a coincidence. To me, the value of William's life is negative. Yeah. But I think you might be actually really bad at reading. Uh-oh. Robert plainly states here that lives have value, and... Enough value that you might even want to take credit for them. For, for kills, not for life. I mean, same difference. All right, fair enough. Robert leads a devil into a trap, and it gets punctured by a bunch of crossbow bolts, and uh, it is twitching and is definitely, but is definitely already dead. And Robert moves over and throws something at its head, uh, a loose pavement stone, and then announces to the crew that he is taking credit for the kill. And it's nice to see that even in this life-or-death struggle where I think they said something like 40% of his sappers are dying, he's got his priorities in order. 
that is why he's in charge because he knows how to keep focused on the important things. The score. The score, yes. But Nock doesn't know the score and has to learn it real quick because what? the infantry charged a wall, which seems stupid because infantry be, you know, crawling. Mm hmm. But then a man at arms jumps 10 feet high to get to oh. it. One, what short walls are these? They have way better walls than the training games. Two, huh, I'm doing the math right now for how much force it takes for a human being to jump 10 feet high with armor. And it says a whole stinking lot. Yeah. Oh, in metric, they should, that's a whole bloody lot. They, they, should, they should be called a man at legs, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yes, you are right. Honestly, for the first time, I think I feel like I need to apologize to our listeners. <laughs> but I'm not going to. Honestly, for yet another time, I have no apologies for anyone. Nice. Because I didn't do the bad thing. Wow. Let your sin be not upon my head. Uh, but that's the worst of it. Everything else is fine. Yep. Uh, people that can jump 10 feet, very scary. Nothing's worse than that. I'm just going to skip down a few lines uh, as the battle continues. Uh, the soldiers start to retreat. Um, oh, there's some cavalry here. Oh, wait, no, we can't call it cavalry. Let's see what it actually... The description is... Some great hulking beast made of what must have been at least five horses and as many riders intertwine in a grotesque embrace. Aw, they're friends. Well, at least they can't jump 10 feet. So we're good. Then we switch back to Juniper's perspective as we, we pull away from Nock angrily saying we need to sound the retreat. It's time to pull back. There's a horse monster plowing its way through our ranks. And Aisha is saying Nock's front is salvageable and Robert's casualties aren't as high as the worst case scenario. And Juniper's response is to think for a moment and then announce that she is going to take a nap. It's... <laughs> It, it's it's great. I, I just love the the confidence she has to deliver this line, which is a very silly line in this, while at the same time being like legitimately cool and impressive and so nonsensical in the scene of devils are overrunning our lines and we're falling back and our goblins are dying left and right and I'm going to take a nap. It's very good. And I get that she's cool and has things in order, but also, girl... That's that's not responsible. She actually goes through with it and is asked, should I just wake you when the battle's over? And she says, it already is. You know better than that. That is not how battles work. Grow up. But she's so cool. But we know that taking a nap is the right decision here. She has the information. It's the decision the Hellhound made. The best thing that can the best thing for the victory is for her to sleep, apparently. Can the best thing for the podcast be for me to sleep? No, unfortunately, I have to say something that's going to prevent you from sleeping. Nothing's going to prevent me from sleeping. Nock is... We go back to Nock, and he kills some kind of mutated abomination, and then wipes his bloody sword on one of the still-blinking grown eyes. I don't like this. Please do not wipe a sword on an eye. That's really bad. And also, your sword's not clean now. It's got eye goop on it. This is so bad in so many ways. Nock, do not do a sword eye wipe. I believe that's one of like the most famous proverbs, right? Do not do a sword eye wipe. Do unto others. Do not do a sword eye wipe. My my eyes are uncomfortable right now. I just I want to 
be clear. This is a bad thing that Nock has Dear done. Dear listener, they are bulging. <laughs> but that uh, horse thing, the five horse, five rider legion is back. Legion's a bad term because there are legions here. The five horse, five rider mess is back. And the mages are brought in to deal with it. And we're told that four dozen, uh, for those who are not mathematically inclined, that's, I don't know, 50. Four dozen fireballs strike this thing, and it kind of staggers back and knocks down a wall. That That's it. They, they hit it with 50 fireballs, and it kind of just bumps into a wall. This thing is scary. Fortunately, though, the legions have a good counter for the follow-up of a cataphract charge, in that they step aside and a line of ogres in full plate with warhammer step forward and just obliterate a cavalry charge they are swinging their massive warhammers and killing man and beast alike in a single stroke kind of nice to have ogres around i gotta say i'm a big fan unlike catherine used to be and still is yeah imagine you're holding a lance okay okay now i pull it away from you kind of rude but okay how do you feel bad it's not quite a try again uh disarmed nearly dishanded Ooh. i know these things are corrupted so fine they're all attached but knock totally red rages but like rides that wave and anyway he pulls the lance out of somebody's arm and the hand comes with it and i just wanted to note that and he then uses this hand lance to kill the big horse monster um it's a very cool scene he stabs it until he's covered in pus uh and then 700 voices take up the scream with him he he describes it as this is uh (laughs) this scream is better than a pack of mourners at a funeral for nilin it's a cool scene i you know i was going to move past this but uh knock deserves a moment to just be on top of the world so to speak sorry on top of the horse Oh, I get it. Because of there's a horse. Yes, there's horses. Okay. I thought you said force. No, because force is fake. Uh, we go back to Robert and. Oh, sorry, what? Well, we go back to Robert and he's talking about goblin munitions about a bit, uh, and he's specifically talking about sharpers and how they don't burn; they just kind of explode, and that they release something called kinetic force, which he tells us is obviously a made-up mage word. And sometimes I feel like I kind of vibe with that when people are talking about a lot of physics. It feels made up. You know, gravity's how the Earth is sticky, right? Or a bowling ball, maybe? Something like that. Science is pretend, and we should not teach Mm -hmm. it to children. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying, and everybody agrees with us, certainly. Then the ritual comes down, in a good way. They box in the devils. They're not locked in here with the devils. The devils are locked in here with them. Haha. Robert almost pities them. Stuck in a box with the boss and a hundred angry Callowins? The boss. He calls her the boss. Capital B boss. Yeah. He thinks she's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was really trying to hold it together on that one. But yeah, okay. The chapter ends, as many chapters do, with a great single sentence. Is it Robert died here in the wind? Jeez, what? You were really on a tear, huh? He keeps showing up, and I like to cause pain. Oh, goodness. In honor no. of him, he would want this. Yeah, he would, want, 
He would want his death to be causing pain to people. You're right. No, we get the... Yes. We get <laughs> we get Robert. Uh, someone was going to have a bad time, and it wasn't going to be the boss. This whole, like, Catherine family is here. And then we get a line break and a scene shift getting preparing us for the next chapter because it, this ends with 50 yards away from the burning, Catherine Foundling slowly unsheathed her sword. It's just, we are ready. Like, this whole chapter has been great. There's been ups and downs. There's been exciting things. There's been, you know, twists with where things are going and some great insight and some great characters. And still, it ends on a moment where you're like, all right, let's get back to Catherine. Let's see what she's doing because this is so good. But unfortunately, we won't be able to get back to Catherine for another week because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Errata Garata as we discuss picking up your sword and holding the line. And as always, here they come again. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata as a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Happy Cooking Show by Music for Videos. Please do not tell them we use this music for something that is most assuredly not a video. Rome Watch music is, as always, Rome Legion by Pixabay. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Were we given a blue sky code a while ago? Yes. Did we mean to use it immediately? Yes. Have we gotten around to it? It's tax season. Give us a break. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and get a couple of other things. There, there are audio posts up there. There might be a picture, I think. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always claim it, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 29, Stand, but not to be confused with one of the great songs by R.E.M., Stand.